This is Aliens and Artists, episode 13, part three of our conversation with J.F. Martell. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. I want to explore a paradox, which is the undeniably superior intelligence in what we're dealing with sometimes. Some of these events clearly demonstrate that we are confronting an order of intelligence that we can't comprehend at this point. Right. For instance, when an eight-foot praying mantis entity manifests in my room (laughs) and all that followed that experience. I understand that non-anthropomorphic intelligence is a variety of mind that I can't begin to appreciate. But inversely, I personally have become more anchored in a parallel value, which is that it doesn't mean we can assign spiritual superiority to these entities. That doesn't mean they've earned us projecting our higher selves onto them. Yeah. Or us disowning our sovereignty as spiritual beings. I wonder if you could discuss those two ends of the spectrum and where you are in regards to them. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a great question. I'm you've got really smart shit to say about this, Stuart. <laughs> but I'll just answer it from my own position here. It's that and again, I'll come back to the uh, to the Buddhist thing, the Mahayana uh, cosmology in Buddhism, where humans occupy what is it, the fourth of the sixth realms. Mm-hmm. There's the demigods above us, and then the gods, and then below us there are well the animals, and then the hungry ghosts and the demons. And humans are not at the top of the spiritual food chain. They're not at the top. They're not. We're not the smartest. We're not the brightest. We're not the most powerful by any means. But there's something about our position that makes us different. And in the Buddhist cosmology, it is that we are in the perfect realm for realizing Dharma, the Dharma, right? That's the idea. It's that it's really hard for a god to realize their own limitations clearly enough for them to embark on the, the work that one needs to do to escape from samsara or whatever. So if you look at it that way... We might not be the toughest kids in the schoolyard, but we have something that the tough kids, the mantises and the greys and whatnot, need from us. They obviously need something from us. They're not indifferent like Cthulhu, just like rising out of the sea and just laying waste to the world mm-hmm. for no reason. And in fact, even in Lovecraft's fiction, the as you, if you read closely, the great old ones are much more dependent on humans than they might appear or the narrators believe they are. They need worshipers. They need sacrifice. For some reason, these things need us. And I think that step one in engaging with these realities is at least getting over this, I think, unfortunate yen we have to put ourselves down because of what we've done to the planet. I mean, there's so many good reasons to put humans down and to hate humans right now. Nevertheless, we have to believe there's still reasons to believe that humans are not only noble in some sense, but powerful. And that when we engage with these things, if we approach these realities with a feeling that we are ants accosting an elephant and trying to engage an elephant in conversation, we're not going to go very far. We have to see ourselves as elephantine in some ways, up to the challenge. Also, we have to have faith that as weird as reality can be at its core, 
that somehow we, we have been given somehow somewhere. I mean, I would, as a Catholic, I have my own answers to that, but somehow we have the faculties we need to know what is real and to find the truth. That's something that's not a very, you don't hear too often these days. It's mostly about proving that there is no truth. And I think that we need to believe that there is truth and that we as humans have some kind of, for some reason, some kind of privileged access to it. And we have to, of course, own that privilege and also own the responsibility that accompanies it. Our responsibility to the non-human beings that we can actually see and the ones that we can't see. I just think we're more powerful than we think. As unlikely as that may seem when you're in the midst of a string of encounters that make you feel like a puppet, I think that they need their puppet. What's a puppeteer without a puppet? Just a guy. Just a guy. It's true and <laughs> unmistakable. Even on a practical level, a general survey, generations of people, even just looking at mantids and greys, there's no mistaking that even with the exotic nature of their behavior and technology, their capacity to manipulate our experience and environments in ways that are very theatrical, something clearly is so valuable about human beings that a whole population of entities are going to great measures in order to ensure that they can interact with us and get what they need. There's a lot to be said about that. Sometimes the trauma, the negativity, but also there's a whole lexicon of experiences which are healing events. It's not a simple one-dimensional dynamic in this mutuality. I couldn't agree more that it's critical we own and claim, but also live up to our noble self. Right. Our highest self. Yeah. We have to take the high road. That's really the only path that's going to yield something gratifying for human beings. I have an intuition that many of them want that for us as well. They would prefer we become the best versions of ourselves. That benefits them more than us being reptilian brain stemmers. Right. Running around, you know, ruining the planet. I agree. There's something in that mutuality that we're still teasing out. Mm -hmm. I totally accord with your sentiment, which leads me into the next question. Disclosure. It's been reactivated lately because the Tic Tac thing got hot. Stuff around the Nimitz. It seems... We may be building to another one of these climactic moments, but what I always think of in relation to disclosure is that disclosure has been occurring over and over, thousands upon thousands of times. We just don't like how it's going down. Right. We want them to land on the White House lawn, but they end up in Becky's bedroom at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. They choose such peculiar, inexplicable modes of disclosing themselves to us. And yet, they do it with great consistency across cultures, geographical areas, uh -huh. race, every demographic we can think of. So, what's your take? Is that a legitimate form of disclosure? If you can speculate, why are they going about it in this way? And what is a constructive way for someone to investigate their experiences if they have been right. disclosed to? Well, I guess any encounter with such entities would constitute some kind of disclosure, at least self-disclosure on the part of the entities. Then there's disclosure in terms of what the government government's willing to admit. I, I've been satisfied in that department by the Tic Tac stuff. 
I have nothing but gratitude for the U.S. Navy <laughs> for coming out and and relieving me of the burden of having to argue for UFOs anymore. <laughs> now I just refer people to the freaking U.S. Navy. Have your argument with them. Yeah. These are the most highly trained pilots. They know what they saw. And you'll have some Reddit dude pointing out how there's the, it's the parallax effect. And that's why the, the ship looks like it's moving so fast. Man, these were Navy pilots, okay? I guess you could say, well, they weren't Air Force pilots. <laughs> these were sailors flying airplanes. What do they know? <laughs> But no, the Navy has its own airplanes with real pilots, and these pilots saw what they saw. So there's a type of disclosure that I think has been happening. I don't think that the disclosure that some of the nuts and bolts people are waiting for is possible because I don't think the government has that information. Yeah, They don't have it to disclose. There are groups within the government, I'm sure, that know more than others. And there probably are people who have given some credence, at least to the greys versus, I don't know, Pleiadian stuff and kind of have started to think about these things in species terms or whatever, that might be going on. But I think that ultimately the government officials are probably in the dark about the true nature of this stuff, that we can't really expect the disclosure that we would want to get from them. It's just not reasonable because they don't have it for us. Now, that's that type of disclosure. Now, the type of disclosure we're talking about, which is more like how these things disclose themselves to us and how they choose to go about it. Well, I think that what would motivate them to disclose themselves fully in some kind of a way that would satisfy our particular epistemic limitations, for example, what would motivate them to land in front of the White House or beam up Trump and take him to some other planet, which I'm sure a lot of people would be grateful for? <laughs> like, what would motivate it? Well, we have to ask a question then about motivation. What do they want? We don't know. Also, in what context are they able to manifest themselves to us? And that's an interesting question that Hansen gets into in his book on the paranormal, The Trickster in the Paranormal, because he talks about liminality. He takes that category from anthropology, sociology, and kind of applies it in a paranormal investigation kind of context and says liminality, which is the, the fringes of a well-mapped-out cognitive space, it's in the fringes of those spaces that those things can happen at all. So that it may be that it would be impossible for these beings to land in front of the White House. Not impossible, but not worth it. I don't know. They manifest more easily to people and situations that are liminal. People who are sensitive to the edges of the known. People who find themselves in a period of intense transition or trauma people who leave the beaten path, like geographically and go into the wilderness. I had a really crazy experience out in the woods one time. If liminality is just part of the phenomenon, then it, it's too much to expect that one day we might have like grays on Joe Rogan, you know, like <laughs> chatting with them. It just might not work that way. So I, I can't imagine better disclosure than what we've gotten so far. In a way, I think that there's something innately mercurial and ambiguous about the levels of reality we're talking about that, in a sense, it will never satisfy the demands of those who insist that these things prove their existence to us. Much like if you want to really be a hardcore materialist, I can never prove to you that I'm conscious at all and I'm not an, an automaton. If you want to take the most rational, logical line of argument possible, 
you will be a solipsist and I'm just a figment of your imagination. And I will never be able to prove to you that I'm not because any proof I come up with will just be coming to you on the same level as me. So it's like, there's no way for me to break through the cognitive barrier you erect if you decide to take a particular line. I just can't imagine what you can ask for beyond sustained multiple encounters over time, over history, communion with these things, contact with these things, corroboration of details from one case to the next. If you're not a believer in the the weird at this point or whatever we want to call it, I don't know what's wrong with you, man. (laughs) You know? Yeah. In those events when that is not enough to persuade a soul, I suppose it's a testament to the reticence and stubborn, well, some human creatures would rather die than forfeit a worldview, put it that way. And we see sad evidence of that at various times. So not only is it as you describe, but it's also multi-generational. The phenomenon moves along generational bloodlines. Grandparents to parents to children, you know, they are here. And I think it's incumbent upon us to grow and meet this mystery where it lives instead of trying to compress it into our comfort zone where the lesser part of us lives. Exactly. Yeah. But I have to ask, what was the crazy experience in the woods? Right. Okay, I will tell you. There's a prologue, very, very short. In the mid-90s, I went backpacking in Algonquin Park, which is a very big provincial park in Ontario and Canada. It's a really beautiful place. I went uh, backpacking there with my then-girlfriend. We had a nice trip. And on the last night in the park. So we were doing basically backcountry camping. So in little trails and off on our own in the, the woods. Last night, I, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night and couldn't fall back asleep. I lay there for about a couple of hours. I'm waiting for the sun to come up. And it's one of those nights. I used to have trouble camping. Now I never, for some reason, now I sleep better in the woods than anywhere else. I'm very grateful for that. Mm. Anyway, so I stepped outside and I, I was smoked at the time. I lit a cigarette. I'm smoking my cigarette outside my tent. And I suddenly get this feeling I'm being watched. So I point my flashlight up and I see an owl just perched right above me, looking at me. And it's, of course, the flashlight was kind of freaking him out or intriguing him because he kept moving his head, trying to see past the light that I was holding up. But I think before that, he'd been looking at me and and all of a sudden, he just takes off in total silence. It was like a, like a stealth bomber, you know, like just the way that a an owl will just take flight in total silence, no ruffling of feathers, and then just glided over the lake as the sun was starting to rise and it just disappeared from view. It was really magical. It's a poetic link to what happened next because I see a connection between these two incidents. I was back in that park much later, only a few years ago. I was on my own this time because recently I've been backpacking alone because I find it's it's probably the only form of meditation that I've been able to, <laughs> to practice with any type of regularity, even though it's a couple of times a year. So I'm out in the woods and I'm near the lake where that, ha- that happened the, the first time. And in the middle of the night, again, I wake up and I hear an owl hooting just above the tent. And I was very awake. There's no question in my mind. There's no possibility in my mind that I was dreaming. So I'm hearing this owl and I'm listening to it. And I'm trying to sleep, trying to fall back asleep. And then I feel a light. You know, when you're 
seeing light through your closed eyelids. It just gets things get a little orangey. I see this light in the tent, so I open my eyes, and there's a, a I have to describe it as a woman, but it was just this being lying in the tent next to me. It looked like the aliens from Cocoon. Remember <laughs> at the end? Yeah. It's made of light, yeah. this kind of soft light that you can look right into. And she's got these big eyes. It looked, I guess, like an alien. I don't know. It was lying in the in the tent with me and just looking at me curiously. The way my wife is kind of looking at me sometimes when I wake up <laughs> and just stared at me for a bit, blinked, and then eventually just vanished. And then I couldn't, I didn't sleep again that night. I just waited till the sun came up. <laughs> I wasn't scared. It was just what it was. And I've always connected it with the owl. And I know that there's been theories about owls and, and aliens and all that stuff. So that was my textbook encounter from that night. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. First of all, I've referenced the work of Mike Cleland, who's done a tremendous amount of documentation on owls and high strangeness and contact. And you're right. As with many things in the paranormal, once you begin to look at an aspect, you find that particular well goes all the way down. Owls <laughs> owls are an instance of this. They auger, populate, and portend the weird. Right. The intelligence behind the contact experience that you just related seems to somehow be, pardon the pun, in cahoots right. with owls. <laughs> <laughs> that seems a fact of the subtle ecosystem we're dealing with here. In my case, so many wacko experiences with coyotes mm. and the strangeness at my house. I don't know how. I don't know why. But I know the intelligence behind my high strangeness experiences can start and stop coyotes. They bookended every one of those experiences. Right. It's all in the audio documentary, Man Meets Mantis, which is uh, in the earlier section of this series. So just to plumb for a few more details on this event, you described her morphology as akin to the entities from the movie Cocoon. Did she have facial features? What were her eyes like? How long was she in the tent with you? Were there intuitive impressions? Was there any information? No, there was no information. There was no transference of data or images. I literally just saw this being and looked at her for, I guess, the fact that I was calm is bizarre. You would expect me to jump out of the tent and freak out. But the fact that I was in a state of sufficient calm to stare at her at all was is a strange thing. She just was just looking at me. She seemed curious and benevolent is what I felt. Though the experience might have, must have lasted maybe 30 seconds, maybe 45, and then she was gone. So it was like I'd seen a deer or, a, you know, or a, another person. or it, it didn't feel like I had moved into this other space where I was getting a download or anything like that. It just felt like this thing had come into the tent to look at me and then left. That was a trip where a lot of things happened, though. A lot of synchronicities attached to it. I'd have to go back in my journals to find, to remember what they were. But I remember I saw tons of wildlife and all kinds of thoughts that occurred to me. I don't know. It was, it was a very, it was a particularly imaginally rich trip. 
but that's how it culminated. Yeah, I, I can't really give you anything more than that. That's that's what it was. And her eyes, were they blue? Oh, her eyes. Yeah, no, they were black. They were black eyes. Um, they had no irises. And yeah. <laughs> Which sounds scary as hell, but you were not frightened. I was not frightened, strangely enough. I was too sleepy, I guess. I was too tired from my long day of hiking to be frightened. <laughs> she just, she, but she would blink though. I remember the eyes blinking. And I remember thinking afterwards that I had seen one of what Arthur Machen, the great British fantasist called, the, he called them the white people. Of course, that phrase has different connotations now, but around 1890 something, Arthur Machen wrote, wrote a book called The White People where he describes uh, a little girl's encounters with the fae, the fair folk. And the way that they're described in that book is very similar to how I would just, I'd just describe that being. If you speculated, would you say that being felt like a native of a different fold in our planet on earth, or did, did she feel local or did right. it feel as though she came from somewhere far away? My feeling was that she was local to not just to this planet, but to that forest. So I, I've always thought of it as an encounter with the fair folk, with uh, their names. I can't remember the Anishinaabe name for these beings, but the the First Nation of this area that I'm in, which is the same area the park is located in, have a name for these beings who live in, uh, from what I remember, they live close to uh, water, rivers, and lakes, and they're benevolent, but they can be tricksters too. They can play tricks on you. This one didn't seem to be in that mood. <laughs> uh, that is a great one. I love that story. Yeah. <laughs> I want to inquire on the distinction between darkness and depth. This is something I've enjoyed about your podcast, Weird Studies, these sustained, deep gazes that you and Phil conduct with the show on these very big questions that we haven't quite teased apart yet. One that I think about a lot is the distinction between darkness and depth. Now, I will admit a reason that I think about this a lot is that I feel I have been confused about it at times in my life. I feel like I've been seduced or drawn toward darkness thinking mistakenly that it was depth and then finding out it was a masquerade and that depth and darkness are distinct from each other. But the two have been one of the more enduring confusions, especially perhaps for esoteric and occult practitioners. Mm. And I wonder if you could share your own thoughts on this and what your own experience with those two has been. Sure. Darkness and well, that's that's a that's a really amazing question. I, I'd be curious to know more about first before I, I delve in, just to know more about what your impressions have been about these two terms and how why you're asking for a distinction between them, or how how they're different or how how they're similar in your own experience. Just to know more about. Sure. For instance, whether it's altered states, it could be ayahuasca, alcohol, any entheogenic compound. There's an allure to these kinds of altered states because they carry intensity. 
in my own life a lot of intense experiences that have electrified me or scared the shit out of me or set me into exalted transitory states. In the midst of them, I felt something deep was transpiring. But upon later reflection, I find it was masturbation, spiritual masturbation, mm -hmm. or simple delusion of me wanting to experience special things, to feel something cutting edge or avant-garde. Any lineage has its shadow face. So there's a shadow in any lineage. You know, in Vajrayana Buddhism, you can get obsessed with, I want to create a tulpa, or that might seem interesting for a few years. And then you do it, and it turns into a shitstorm. Right. One might want to make ayahuasca a spiritual path, but then you find it begins to disintegrate and lead to diminishing returns. So there's an infinite variety of examples, but in my life, I feel like I've often been a state chaser and I've wanted it to be deep when ultimately it wasn't. Mm. But what has been truly deep in my life has been much more a simple variety of experience sustained for a long time, specifically my children, my family, my wife, right? you know, loving relationships that are difficult, but have caused me to grow and deepen or doing the same spiritual practices every day for years on end, which might not seem dramatic day to day, but slowly carves out a bigger space inside of my being. So that's not as sexy, but it actually has yielded more love and clarity and goodness. Mm. The darkness oftentimes seems like a hell of a lot more fun, but it doesn't have this sustained transformative power right? of how darkness can just be a wild goose chase that goes nowhere. So does that offer more color? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I know exactly what you're... That's a great question. Wow. Uh, I am a state chaser, uh, I'll admit it, and I have been very much drawn to darkness and depth in my life, thinking, as you have, perhaps that it's in those places that I would find what the others were missing. That if I could go into that, you know, behind the furnace, I remember my grandmother, my grandmother's house, my grandparents' house when I was a kid, she, they, they had a furnace room and there was a dark corner in the back and my brother never went there because he thought War Duke was there. I don't know if you remember War Duke, but he was a bad guy on the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon that played on Saturday mornings for kids. He was convinced that War Duke lived back there. I remember the day I went in there and I thought, I'm going to see War Duke. And of course, I just found a boring broom closet. But that didn't stop me from seeking out darkness and depth. And to this day, I'll admit that I have a, an aesthetic love of darkness and depth. When we talk about the unknown or the weird, it's easy to make a category mistake between what in one context I call the, the epistemic or epistemological weird and the ontological weird. Oh. Epistemological weird is that which is weird for us because we lack certain pieces of information, which if we had them would dissolve the weirdness of whatever it is we're looking at. And darkness and depth to me speak to this epistemological weirdness. The depths of the sea are weird because we don't know what's down there. Uh -huh. So there's a, an allure that comes from, delving, de diving deep into the sea to find what it is that's weird. But of course, the implication is that that which is not in the depths of the sea isn't weird. 
And one of the things on weird studies that we try to do is to bring out the weirdness of everyday things. We don't do that very systematically, but the idea is to take a film that's, for example, Raiders of the Lost Ark instead of Twin Peaks, you know? Mm. Just take a something that's exists on the surface of our collective consciousness and try to show how it was weird all along and how it sometimes it's the things on the surface that call you to not to the epistemologically weird stuff, the stuff we don't know yet, but the unknowability of even the most quote unquote known object. It seems to me that it's a confrontation with that which is weird in itself, which doesn't need to hide in the depths or in the darkness that Mm -hmm. really kind of challenges us to grow as people because they confront us with our own limitations, our own uh, power. Um, For instance, we're talking about earlier about the innate uh, specialness, let's say, of the human in the universe. Well, that finds a perfect example or manifestation in the love of a parent for their children or a, a marriage. These things that are, in one sense, completely unweird are, in a way, the weirdest things of all. The fact that we're bipedal, despite despite the force of gravity, is fucking weird. <laughs> you know, like, why do we stand up on two legs? Like, why did we do that if not knowing we were going to use hands? You know, like, it just seems weird. It seems like we could only stand up, become bipedal, in order to use our hands to build shit. But, of course, one had to happen before the other. And so I, I love surfaces. And I think art is a great example of that. Every art is all surface. Even darkness in art is on the surface. I can show you a painting of darkness, but the darkness is on the canvas. I know I'm not not putting the, I don't paint, make a painting, then hide it in a dark room and say, see how weird it is? I show you the darkness. I put the darkness on the surface and you can see how the darkness exists on a level with the light. I can show you a, a film of about depth, like a movie that has to do with these incredible, unfathomable depths. And of course, all of those depths are revealed to you on the the paper thin screen of the film. There's something about art that brings everything on the same level, dissolves a lot of the epistemological categories we use in the day to day, putting them all on the same level and therefore allows you to see how the real depth and the weird, the real darkness is all on the surface. It's all immediately there. And so you can't associate the weird with this or that particular practice. Oh, to know the weird, you have to do ayahuasca. To know the weird, you have to go and hike in Algonquin Park and meet fairies. The weird is with us all the time. It's in us. It's just part of the fairy fabric of our... It's the fact that we can think and live at all that's the weirdest. And that's not something you need to go delving into dark and deep places to know. Wow. Wow. That is such a great take. It reminds me of the true depth of beginner's mind in Buddhist practice. Right. There's this emphasis in Zen on beginner's mind. What it means is a behavior as simple as staring at a wall, for example. If you really truly see a wall, with beginner's mind, you will have intimate contact with the weird, with high strangeness. Yeah, yeah. Which is an intrinsic facet of our native endowment. What a great way to wrap up. For more information on J.F. Martel, visit 
reclaimingart.com. And also weirdstudies.com. That's spelled W-E-I-R-D. JF's book, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, is available on Amazon and many other online portals. Fran Drescher, star of the hit TV series, The Nanny. Yes, you're still listening to Aliens and Artists, and I said, Fran Drescher, an artist who believes she and her ex-husband were abducted by aliens when they were young. She also asserts that those abductions figure prominently in what Drescher feels was the preordained nature of her marriage to said ex-husband. Drescher intuits that their coupling was by alien design, and it ties into sightings they each had when young. Drescher told the Huffington Post, quote, It's funny because Peter and I both saw aliens before we knew each other. Doing the same thing, driving on the road with our dads. In all seriousness, we were both in junior high. A few years later, we met and we realized that we had the same experience. I think that somehow we were programmed to meet. We both have this scar. It's the exact same scar on the exact same spot. Enchanted Patreon, sensual patrons, passionate stuartdavis.com, love Patreon sex patrons, fleshly stuartdavis.com, enlightenment Patreon, carnal patrons, naked Patreon, nude stuartdavis.com, peace Patreon, fulfillment patrons, insight stuartdavis.com, Manhood Patreon Womanliness Patrons Erotic StuartDavis.com Heavy Petting Patreon Non-Duality Patron Chasm Spasm Orgasm StuartDavis.com There's a man at the mic Six foot three Tall and beautiful but that's not me I'm a bully It's a bottle of juice Decide if I should figure it, figure it out I guess I wonder what the fuss is about Soon as I know I will be spitting it, spitting it, spitting it out I wanna, I gotta, I better, I'm gonna I wanna, I gotta, I better, spit it out Spit it out Spit it Spit it Anything but it's always sex 
Yeah, I've seen turtles underneath the world. Yeah, I've seen turtles underneath. 